Hello, it's the 8th of December, Thursday, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Won j a n g o The unionized trucker strike entered its 15th day as the government expanded its return to work orders to the steel and petrochemical industries. We'll have the latest updates in news briefing shortly. Last week, President Yoon Sung-yeol called on China to help dissuade North Korea from further nuclear weapons development. We'll discuss his comments and the broader China-North Korea relationship for our in-depth today. And then coming up for Explore Korea, we learn about the Seoul Urban Life Museum and a special exhibition looking back at the history of residential life in the capital. Let's begin with Korea 24. It's been 15 days since truckers began a nationwide strike that has brought major industries to a virtual standstill. The government on Thursday ordered drivers serving the steel and petrochemical industries to resume their routes. The order comes nine days after a similar directive for cement truckers. Our KBS World Radio news editor Gu Hijin joins us in the studio now to give us the latest in the labour unrest and our other headlines of the day. Hijin, hello. Hello, Jango. So first, we should note that the Cargo Truckers Solidarity Union is holding a meeting to mull over the government decision whether to capitulate or continue its strike. Uh, With that in mind, can you give us the details of the government's latest decision? Well, the government expanded its return-to-work order for striking unionised workers, um, uh, truckers, mandating freight haulers who serve the steel and petrochemical industries to resume work or face penalties. Prime Minister Han Dok-soo announced the decision during an extraordinary meeting, a cabinet meeting on Thursday, calling the strike unjustified and criticising its detrimental blow to the nation's economy and industries. Let's listen to what the Prime Minister had to say. Logistics is the lifeline of our economy. When logistics stops, our industries come to a standstill and the damage ricochets to the national economy and public livelihood. Due to their refusal to deliver freight, manufacturers' inventory storage is at maximum capacity and they're no longer operational. For exporters, ground routes to ports are blocked. There are concerns that problems with shipments for steel and petrochemical products may have repercussions on essential industries such as automobiles, shipbuilding and semiconductors and cripple our whole economy. The situation before us is too grave and urgent to wait for their voluntary return. Now, the Prime Minister said it is inevitable for the government to expand the back-to-work order amid concerns uh, that it may further impact key industries, including semiconductors, and drive the nation's economy into crisis. Following the return-to-work order, Finance Minister Chu kyung warned that violators may face the same penalties as non-compliant cement truckers who were ordered to return on November 29th. Those that refuse to comply without reasonable cause may have their licences revoked, face up to three years in prison or a maximum fine of 30 million won, which is nearly 23,000 US dollars. The minister said the truckers' collective action has dealt damages of 2.6 trillion won on the economy. Shipments of steel products have more than halved, while those for petrochemical products stand at a meagre 20% of usual levels. 
Yes, as we said, we await uh, the results from that meeting of the Cargo Truckers Solidarity Union. And uh, with that meeting, uh, the situation could shift significantly uh, overnight. So we'll see uh, what happens from those talks in the next few hours. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, let's move on to our other headlines of the day. The government has urged South Korean companies to exercise caution and strengthen identification efforts to avoid hiring disguised North Korean IT workers. It believes the North is funneling a foreign currency from illegal cyber activities towards nuclear and missile development. Uh, Can you tell us more? Well, in a joint statement on Tuesday, the Ministries of Foreign Affairs, Science and Unification, as well as the National Intelligence Service, called on domestic businesses to be wary of employing North Korean IT workers by mistake. The agency said a preemptive inspection showed that it is possible for North Korean IT specialists to fake their identities and gain employment in or win contracts projects from uh, South Korean companies. The government advised firms to exercise caution as taking on North Korean IT hands would not only tarnish their reputations, but also violate related uh, domestic and international sanctions, including the Inter-Korean Exchange and Cooperation Act, as well as the UN Security Council resolutions. So how do North Korean IT hires go about obtaining jobs from South Korean companies? Well, the advisory details how North Korean IT workers obtain fake identities and what precautions companies should take when using South Korean job search platforms when seeking global hires for projects. The North's IT workers can forge identities or borrow other people's accounts when seeking uh, jobs uh, through these uh, job search sites. There are some cases of North Koreans teaming up with international IT specialists as subcontractors on a project. Uh, The agencies said the North IT labour force brings in hundreds of millions of dollars in foreign currency every year, adding that most of their revenues are funnelled into the North's development of nuclear weapons and missiles. Meanwhile, the US Senate and the House of Representatives reached an agreement on the National Defence Authorization Act that will require the US government to maintain a minimum of 28,500 US service members in South Korea. The Senate also called on the Pentagon to reaffirm US commitment to providing extended deterrence to South Korea. Can you tell us more? Well, the text of the NDAA for the fiscal year 2023 released on Tuesday calls on the Defence Secretary to reinforce the US alliance with South Korea, including by maintaining the presence of approximately 28,500 members of the US forces deployed to the country and to reaffirm US commitment to extended deterrence using the full range of its defence capabilities, consistent with the mutual defence treaty between the two countries. The Act also calls on the Defence Secretary to evaluate threats posed by North Korea and other countries in the Indo-Pacific region and, if 
enacted, it will require the Secretary to submit an analysis on the current and future theatre nuclear capabilities and doctrines of Russia, China and North Korea within 270 days of taking effect. It also requires the Defence Secretary to conduct an analysis of the use of or potential use of unmanned aerial system swarms by adversaries, including China, Russia, Iran and North Korea. Turning now to some other domestic headlines, an opposition-led motion calling for the dismissal of Interior Minister Yi Sang-min over the bungled government response to the fatal crowd crush incident in Itaewon has been reported to the National Assembly. Can you update us on this? Well, during a plenary session on Thursday, Assembly Speaker Kim Jin-pyo asked floor leaders of the ruling and main opposition parties to deliberate on the schedule for the remaining process. This comes after the main opposition Democratic Party previously proposed the motion on November 30. With this uh, majority, with its majority in Parliament, the DP is seeking to pass the motion through the Assembly on Friday. Now, this is acting within a 72-hour window before it automatically expires. And finally, wholesale prices of eggs and ducks are rising as poultry farms across the nation report cases of the highly pathogenic avian influenza. Can you tell us more? Yes, according to the government's AI response headquarters, a total of 34 cases of highly pathogenic AI have been confirmed as of Thursday at local poultry farms in the last 50 days since October 19th. Authorities say that the AI risks are higher this year than the last, noting that this season's first case was reported three weeks earlier and confirmed cases are coming in from more regions. The continued cases of AI are pushing up prices of eggs and ducks uh, amid concerns of a possible supply shortage. According to the Korea Institute for Animal Products uh, Quality Evaluation, wholesale duck prices hit 5,046 won per kilo on Wednesday, up 10.7% from a month ago, while the wholesale price of 10 eggs rose by 9.2% to 1,933. That's all for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. Thank you. The spectre of North Korea's seventh nuclear test continues to hang in the air as it has done for most of 2022. And China might be the last chance that could persuade Pyongyang to not push ahead. In a recent interview with Reuters, the South Korean president, Yoon Sang-yeol, also called on China, North Korea's closest ally, to fulfill its responsibilities as a permanent member of the UN Security Council. He said not doing so would lead to an influx of military assets to the region. To discuss this issue, we have joining us on the line now political science professor Robert Kelly from Busan National University. Professor Kelly, hello and welcome back to the show. Hi, thanks for having me again. Yes, thank you for making the time today. Uh, Let me start by asking you a general overview of the relationship between China and North Korea at the moment. How would you uh, describe the relationship? 
I think the, it's basically a sort of a transactional one. Um, I think there was some genuine ideological alignment, you know, back in the seven, maybe as late as the 70s when Mao Zedong was still alive. Um, but, you know, China's become significantly less ideologically Marxist or communist or socialist in any real way over the last couple of decades, as we all know. And North Korea really isn't ideologically Marxist anymore, really, either, right? It's more sort of like gangsterish, I would argue. And, and North Korea, China doesn't actually benefit too much from North Korea's you know, sort of sanctions-busting behavior in the global economy and whatnot, because China's actually fairly integrated into the global economy, right? It trades a great deal and has a lot of dollar assets and things like that. So I don't think there's too much sort of like affinity, right? It really is sort of transactional, which is to say that China finds North Korea a useful buffer. Those are the words that Chinese scholars will use with you. Um, it is a useful buffer between China and the uh, democracies of South Korea, Japan, and the United States. And so I think China's attitude towards Korean unification is entirely utilitarian. They're opposed to it because it would be bad for China, and uh, you know they couldn't really care less about the Koreans one way or another. Mm. Last month, the topic of North Korea was brought up during the U.S.-China summit on the sidelines of the G20 summit in Bali. It was interesting because President Joe Biden said he discussed North Korea with President Xi Jinping, and he told reporters later that he is not sure if China is able to contain North Korea. How much influence do you think China has over uh, North Korea? Yeah, that's actually a big, big matter of debate. And as you might imagine, people on sort of the outside, the Americans, the South Koreans, the Japanese all say China has a lot of leverage. And the Chinese say, no, 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 we don't, right? Because they're trying to sort of buck past this problem to the United States. But I would argue just at least just sort of empirically, I mean, if you look at sort of like the trade data, if you look at the relationship with China, right? China actually has a relationship with North Korea, which the rest of us sort of do not. And so because it does, you would think that it could sort of change or put pressure on that relationship in order to get something out of the North Koreans. To be more specific, it's China that doesn't really enforce the sanctions very much against North Korea. So if they wanted to get North Korea to change on something, they could actually do what President Yoon said, which is step up to their role as a U.N. security permanent U.N. Security Council permanent member and enforce the sanctions. And China's actually obligated to do that, and they don't. Um, on energy, on trade, um, on, on North Korean monies and Chinese banks, you know, the North Koreans have a lot of sort of illegal money sloshing around Asia, and, and a lot of that is in China, right? And it's been there actually for, for decades. And so there are a whole bunch of ways, I think, that, that China could sort of push the North Koreans. I mean, they could cut off energy, and North Korea would be in a lot of trouble for example, um, and they haven't done it, and they haven't done it really for, for decades. And I think the concern is that they're afraid that if they do this too much, North Korea might implode. And so I think they are more – they're willing to accept uh, North Korea nuclear weapons before they're willing to accept the risk that pressuring North Korea might lead to the whole thing imploding. So right. I think that's why we're here. Where, right. That's where we are. So China seems to be shielding uh, North Korea, particularly at the U.N. Security Council. Level. Yeah, I think that's pretty widely accepted at this point, yeah. Right, so uh, Beijing and Moscow to be uh, right. uh, have been opposing further right. sanctions North Korea. Right. right. Uh, but can you explain a bit more? Can you pinpoint what makes China oppose further UN sanctions against North Korea? So I think the concern is again. I mean, the Chinese don't tell us, right? Um, and then the Chinese don't admit that they don't enforce the sanctions. Right? I mean, you can see it by the way. If you, I've flown into North Korea, and I've you know, and you go through Beijing, and you can see people going on. The planes to North Korea through, you know, they go to Beijing duty-free and they buy all this stuff that's like illegal to bring into North Korea and they just walk right onto the plane with it. <laughs> you see people just like walking on with like bags of liquor and hair dryers and toasters and, you know, you're not supposed to bring any of that stuff in, but, you know, whatever. Anyway, um, no, I think the concern is, is very straightforward, very strategic, right? I mean, they, they you know, uh, if, if South Korea, if uh, Korea unifies, 
almost everybody believes that it will be southern-led unification, right? No one actually thinks that North Korea is really sort of capable of uniting the two Koreas at this point. Even if they won the war, I'm not sure South North Korea could absorb South Korea without an internal implosion. So I think that the real concern is that any kind of meaningful steps towards unification in Korea basically means southern-led unification. It means the Republic of Korea you know, basically advancing up from the demilitarized zone to the Chinese border. And the Chinese don't want that. The Republic of Korea is an American ally. They're American troops here and so on. You know, it's a, it's a democracy. China is, you know, pretty harsh autocracy these days. And so I think the relationship really is, it's just entirely strategic, right? I think the North Koreans and the Chinese don't want to admit that. So like, again, when I went to North Korea, they have, so I went to the Arirang Mass Games, and they have all this stuff about how China and North Korea are like working together and building socialism and everything. And they got like, you know, pictures of Xi Jinping and Kim Jong-un like next to each other and everything. But it's all flim. I don't think anybody really believes that, right? I think it's entirely instrumental. And, and I mean, but if I'm from China's point of view, I mean, if they're sliding into a Cold War with the United States, which I think everybody kind of believes, um, you know, it makes sense for China to look the other way on North Korea and, and have North Korea be sort of like this, this buffer. But we can't actually gauge for sure how efficacious China's abilities on North Korea are until they really try. And they've never done that. Mm. Right. I mean, they've never really sort of like cut off the oil and the energy for like a week or something like that, or like sealed off the border and stop, you know, or going after North Korean money. Like, I think that would be a big one. Um, and the Chinese just just haven't done it. So here we are. Right. So uh, while China turns a blind eye at the same right. time, uh, they don't want to see North Korea proliferate massively in their nuclear weapons. Right. Uh, right. Because that, yeah, that so would that, bring the uh, U.S. Uh, further strengthening its uh, nuclear deterrence capabilities in the region, and that would lead to, say, uh, more frequent flights of U.S. strategic bombers right. over the Korean Peninsula, which uh, China, right. of course, uh, would not want. Right. Yeah, exactly. And it might actually lead to South Korean nuclearization, right? I mean, th that's become a big topic of debate here in South Korea in the last eight months. I mean, I've been teaching security in South Korea for 14, 15 years now. And I've never seen as much discussion about whether or not the ROK should build nuclear weapons as I have in the last eight months. I mean, I've gone to conferences on it. I'm going to another one in a week, I mean, two weeks. This is like a really big thing now, you know, and the Chinese are genuinely freaked out that South Koreans are going to build nuclear weapons. And, I mean, I put this on Twitter this morning. I'm like, who cares? I mean, like, you brought this on yourself, right? I mean, the Chinese had 30 years to really push North Korea towards denuclearization. South Korea has tried with great patience and in very good faith. South Korea has tried since the 90s, since the 92 declaration on denuclearization. South Korea has tried to denuclearize the peninsula, and North Korea has just never come around. And, and the Chinese basically sort of like looked the other way for 30 years while North Korea built this great big arsenal in secret, and they're shooting missiles over Japan. I mean, if, how do you expect South Korea to respond, right? I mean, I, I'm kind of not surprised that the South Koreans are eventually talking about nuclear weapons. The Americans talk about bringing in, you know, more assets, as, as Yoon put it. I mean, what are we going to do, right? And, and with the Chinese, and this is where the Chinese, I guess, they're like just going to catch 22, right? I mean, they don't really want to pressure North Korea too much because they're worried about implosion, but they're not willing to recognize that the costs for that are the Americans and the Japanese and the South Koreans all kind of getting more and more anxious, right, and, and, and you know, turning up the defense spending and, and maybe even South Korea nuclearizing. And I think ultimately China's got to, you know, it's got to choose. And it's kind of surprising me actually that China so consistently chooses North Korea because even if North Korea collapsed, China is so powerful today. It's so big. It's not really clear to me why a unified Korea on China's border would be this massive geopolitical catastrophe. It would take South Korea a generation to absorb North Korea. Without North Korea, you wouldn't need the American alliance for South Korea anymore anyway. I mean, it might still happen, but you wouldn't need it the way you do now. And so it's not actually even clear to me that, like, superpower China couldn't withstand 
the unification of like small Korea on its border. I mean, it's not even clear to me that the logic is actually that strong anymore. But mm. that's the I mean, that's those are China's preferences. I mean, at least as they've expressed them. Right. I mean, China has just not taken these steps to, to stop North Korean denuclearization. I mean, they just haven't done much. And now here we are. You know, mm. and I'm, I'm surprised the Chinese wanted this outcome. But I mean, this is where their behavior has taken us. So that's why President Yoon is saying what he's saying. Right. So President Yun is saying, is putting pressure on China, saying yeah, that they need to uh, deal uh, with North Korea more than they need to help more. Right. Uh, right. How much more do you think the U.S. and South Korea can press or incentivize China to prevent North Korea from further developing nuclear weapons and carrying right. out this uh, seventh nuclear test? Yeah, that's actually a really great question. I mean, part of the reason why I think why the Chinese aren't helping much in North Korea is because the U.S. and China are kind of sliding towards a Cold War um, in the last, you know, five, seven years or so. Um, and the more you get a, like a Sino-U.S. freeze, the more it's going to be hard to work on all kinds of issues that the U.S. and China share, not just North Korea, but Taiwan, trade and, uh, 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 trade and, and, and sea lane maintenance and, and sort of operability in, in the South China Sea, sort of openness down there, um, climate change, trade, finance. I mean, there are actually all sorts of issues where China and the United States have shared interests and should be able to sort of hammer out some deals, but all, including North Korea. But all that stuff is being sort of unwound. It's all being sort of overrun, if you will, by the strategic divisions at the top. And that's a shame, actually, because, like I said, I mean, I do actually think, and as you have pointed out, too, I think it's probably in China's interest to sort of rein in the North Korean nuclear program. I mean, do they really want this sort of like scary, closed autocracy on their border, proliferating nuclear weapons, you know, launching missiles over Japan. I mean, what if the Chinese, you know, what if the Japanese respond by, like, shooting down a missile? What if the North Korean missile crashes on Japan and kills 20 people? I mean, like, you could be looking at, like, a major incident, and the Chinese have the ability, we think, to, like, push the North Koreans not to do that. I mean, it's it, North Korea is pretty reckless, and, and, and it surprises me that China is willing to sort of tolerate that, given that China has an interest in stability up in this region, because, you know, China's Real interests are things like Taiwan and the South China Sea. China doesn't want to get sort of chain-ganged into some Northeast Asian-Korean contingency with the Americans, right? So, again, it strikes me that it's kind of in China's interest to sort of like pull the reins on North Korea a little bit. I'm genuinely surprised they haven't tried to slow down the North Korean program more than they have. But, you know, at this point, I mean, it may, at this point, the Chinese may not even be able to do that, right? I mean, North Koreans may be so far along that, you know, maybe China's options are really limited. But I, I do think I do think President Yoon is correct. I do think the Chinese bear a lot of blame for this and, and could have done a great deal more, especially when it mattered like 15 years ago. I think they could have done a lot more, but you know, they didn't. There's been tension throughout the year, pretty much, uh, because analysis has shown that uh, North Korea is prepared to carry out a seventh right. nuclear test. Uh, do you think they will carry out a seventh nuclear test? And why do you think they haven't yet so far? Yeah, the the latter question, I don't really know. I wonder if they're just sort of like pulling our chain. <laughs> North Koreans are really good at like dragging out attention and calling attention to themselves and playing with us and flim-flamming with us. I mean, the North Koreans are really great at that sort of thing, actually, right? So all of us, all of us in the media and academia, we spend like a year talking about North Korea. When's the test? When's the test? You know, and so we're always talking about North Korea, even though North Korea is not doing anything. So part of it might just be an attention-getting gimmick. <laughs> But I, I do think, yes, I mean, the, the answer to your first question is a more important one, which is I do think, yes, they will probably end up doing the test. The test in 2017, the last one they did, was that weapon was small by the standards of what the Americans and the Russians can build. 
Um, and so, you know, if the North Koreans really want to have the deterrent against the Americans, which is the real point of this program, is to be able to nuke the continental United States if they absolutely have to. To do that, they probably need to do a couple, actually not just one, but probably two or three more tests in order to build the really, really big weapons, right? The kinds of ones that, again, that were built during the Cold War at the peak in like the 70s and 80s. Mm. The North Koreans are probably still uh, a couple of generations away from that. And to, to do that, ultimately, you have to test. And so I think that's why people are talking about the test. I mean, if it happens the next two weeks or the next two months or two years, I mean, I'm not sure that the timing that matters that much. But I do think, yeah, at some point, they're going to have to test. Right. So uh, you're not sure if it will happen perhaps this year. Perhaps uh, we'll yeah. be looking ahead to next year then. Right, right. If North Korea does push ahead with a nuclear test at some point, uh, how do you think the situation will uh, devolve? How do you think this yeah. whole Washington and Tokyo will handle? And how do you think China will have to respond then? Yeah, devolve is actually the right verb, right? It will like, get a lot worse. Um, I think the biggest wild card in this is uh, the South Koreans. Um, the Japanese won't do much. They'll protest, but they won't really do anything. Um, the Americans are really, really nervous about spiraling nuclearization in East Asia, which means you know South Korea, Japan, or Taiwan building nuclear weapons. So the Americans probably won't do anything either. We'll go back for more sanctions and stuff like that. But the real issue is that the South Korean right, South Korean hawks and conservatives, and increasingly sort of you know South Korean South Koreans generally, if you look at the public opinion data, um, are sympathetic. Or, or want to have nuclear weapons, right? And you now have a conservative administration that's more sympathetic to these kinds of things than the South Korean left. And you've got very strong public opinion support for it, over 70% right now, uh, according to the data we saw back in March. And, and so if North Korea does another test, and it's a really big one, which it probably will be, um, then South Korean public opinion support for nuclear weapons will go even higher. So you could have President Yoon staring at public opinion saying 80% of South Koreans want a nuclear weapon because they're terrified of the North Koreans with these bigger and bigger nuclear weapons. And, and the UN administration is, is, you know, staffed with hawks and, 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 and sort of advocates of, of you know, nuclearization in South Korea and stuff like that. And so I think that is the biggest wild card, right, because the South Korean, South Korean conservative politicians have already started saying that if North Korea does seventh nuclear test, South Korea should withdraw from the nonproliferation treaty. And that would be the first step towards South Korea building its own independent nuclear deterrent, right? It doesn't mean as soon as you do it that South Korea will build nukes the next day. But, I mean, that would actually be a really, really big step to pull out of the MPT. And the North Koreans are – I think the South Koreans are threatening that in part to get the Chinese to finally do something, right? But, I mean, it tells you just how scary North Korea has become that South Korea is starting to consider really radical options like leaving the NPT. President Yoon suggested, you know, preemptive strikes on North Korean missile sites in a crisis. He said that back when he was a candidate in February. I mean, mm. the South Koreans are getting more and more, like – desperate for like something to like rein in the North Korean nuclear program. And I'm just again, I'm amazed the Chinese aren't reading these signals coming. I mean, coming out of South Korea. If you look at South Korean public opinion on China, it's like going through the floor. South Koreans can't stand China now. I mean, China's approval rating in Korea is really low now. And it's all because of North Korea, because of the perception that China's not helping at all. And so the South Koreans are getting more and more desperate. And, you know, and I mean, if the Chinese don't do anything after the seventh test, you know, again, I have a feeling that the nuclear—I have a feeling South Korea is getting into building nuclear weapons. I could see that. I think that's coming. I guess we'll have to wait and see if North Korea does carry out this long-mooted seventh nuclear test. In the meantime, we appreciate your discussion today. We've been speaking to Robert Kelly from Busan National University. Thank you once again for your time. Thank you for having me. Sorry if I was so grim there at the end. <laughs> Thank you for having me.
Welcome to the Korea24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index fell 11.73 points, or 0.49% on Thursday, closing the day at 2,371.08. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also fell, losing 5.62 points, or 0.78%, to close the day at 712.52. On the foreign exchange, the local currency, the South Korean won, strengthened 3.71 against the dollar, ending the day at 1,318.1. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. We turn now to Korea Trending, a daily segment looking at some of the other new he- news headlines that have been trending online in Korea today. And for that, we have with us Diane Yu to bring us those stories once again. Diane, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, Tango. It's good to see you. OK, a y we are jumping straight into our stories today. Uh, what do you have for us first? So the first uh, final results of the 2023 college scholastic ability test known as Sunung, which took place on November 17th, just came out today. Mm. According to the Korea Institute of Curriculum and Evaluation, the results showed that the Korean language section of the test was easier than last year, but mathematics got more difficult, showing a sharp decline in the number of students with perfect scores. And there were three students who got 100% in all sections of CSAT, two of whom were current high school seniors and won a graduate retaking the exam. Right, I believe that is half the amount of students who received a perfect score Mm -hmm. last year. There were six reported last year, I believe. Uh, Meanwhile, how did the Institute analyse that the Korean language section was relatively easy and the mathematics section difficult? It can be actually explained by the standard score. A standard score is a number that lets you know how much your test score differs from the mean. It's calculated based on the difficulty of each subject. If the test is difficult, the highest possible standard score given to those who got all the answers correctly is calculated higher. And if it is easy, the score is lowered. And looking at the results, the highest standard score for Korean language was 134 points, which was lower than last year's 149 points. Because the test was relatively easy, the number of perfect score, uh, scores was 371, a significant increase from last year's 28. Wow, so that is a very big increase indeed. What about mathematics then? A huge drop, mm. right? Yeah, and as for the mathematics, the highest standard score was 145 points, similar to last year's 147 points. But the number of people who received the highest score plunged to 930, about a third of last year. It's the first time since 2018 that the number of students with perfect scores in the mathematics section fell below 1,000. So it's analyzed that it was a very difficult test this year. College admissions experts said that whether a student gets a good scores in math will determine determine whether or not he or she gets into college next year. So students can find out about their official scores tomorrow as they will receive individual report cards at school or online. Right, so individual report card D-Day is tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Uh, We wish all the students luck. Fingers crossed. Yes, indeed. Okay, let's uh, turn to our second story in the meantime. What do you have for us? A 63-year-old man has been caught by the police for the illicit capture and sale of wild animals. An animal protection organization received a report about the illegal animal trade, and the police conducted a joint crackdown with the Ministry of Environment to catch the dealer. And this was the largest crackdown in the last 10 years. More than 4,000 snakes were confiscated, along with 30 badgers, 
three gorani or water deer in English, and 37 Korean rat snakes, which are classified as second-class endangered species in South Korea. And about 60 illegal hunting tools, such as snares and traps, were also found and seized. Wow, 4,000 snakes. Mm -hmm. That is quite a a haul. What was the reason behind his illicit capturing and selling of these wild animals? Well, because of the common assumption that wildlife products used in traditional medicine promote wellness or treat illness, even though the popularity has decreased over time. Mm. And not to mention its profitability. These animals are trafficked for millions of one to as much as 10 million one, depending on their size, which is about $7,500. A seller from a health center that deals with wildlife products said one month's worth of these types of medicine is made using the extracts of over 100 snakes and is sold for 3 million won. That's around $2,200. Okay, so there is a demand for these animals, especially for traditional Korean medicine, Mm -hmm. Uh, but also in Korea, not only poachers, but also people who buy from them can also be charged as well, right? Right. According to an official from the Environment Ministry, illegally capturing, distributing, as well as consuming wildlife are all punishable unless for purposes written in the law, such as research studies. Since 2005, the ministry has implemented the Wildlife Protection Act, which punishes people who catch, sell, or eat wild animals, including snakes. And this act stipulates that capturing or killing wildlife is punishable by imprisonment for up to two years years or a fine up of up to 20 million won or $15,000. And in the case of endangered wildlife, offenders can face imprisonment for up to three year, years or a fine of between 3 million and 30 million won, which is 2200 to $22,000 respectively. Okay, let's swiftly move on to our next story, our final story of the day. Mm -hmm. I believe it is an unexpected one, right? Something unexpected for sure. North Korea's state service, Korean Central Television or KCTV, belatedly aired a recorded match between South Korea and Brazil at the 2022 World Cup in Qatar yesterday night. On top of that, the state media officially introduced for the first time the players on the team, including the Taeguk Warriors captain Son Heung-min. Now, you might think, why wouldn't they, as the World Cup is a big international <laughs> event? The reason why we're mentioning this news is because it is incredibly unusual for the North to broadcast South Korean sports matches or shed light on the country's sports players. Right, the North usually refrains from showing anything that might show South Korea in a positive light, right. but... It is perhaps the fact that South Korea lost quite heavily to Brazil (laughs) 4-1, which is why they decided to uh, broadcast it. Mm -hmm. Uh, How did the state media get a hold of the game? So according to FIFA, KCTV is receiving its feed for this year's tournament via the South Korean networks, including KBS, SCBS and NBC, but never broadcast the games live to maintain absolute control over what people see and hear. Mm. KCTV covered the Taegukgi, the national flag of South Korea, in the spectator seat even during other matches and blurred advertisements for Hyundai Motors. However, this round of 16 game between Korea and Brazil was broadcasted almost unedited with even the ads kept intact. Mm, Well, it is an unprecedented move for sure. How did the state media commentate on the game and describe the players? 
During yesterday's broadcast, the state media introduced Son's career and general information about him and the other Korean players from a relatively neutral standpoint. It mentioned that Son Heung-min is the captain of the South Korean national team, that he is 30 years old and 183 centimeters tall. It also mentioned that he has participated in 107 international matches and that his first international appearance was back in 2010. A similar explanation was given to Hwang Hee-chan, saying that he is 26 years old when 177 centimeters tall. The network also re-aired the one and only goal for the Taegu Warriors by Baek Seung-ho as a highlight video. Yeah, still, we do wonder why North Korea decided to show this game. Right. Uh, but while they did, it looks like they was still uh, very tightly controlled mm-hmm. anyway. OK, we'll wrap it up there for today's Korea Trending. Thank you for those stories, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. It's time now for our weekly segment, Explore Korea, where we look to discover more of the country's history, culture and travel highlights. And for that this week, we have joining us in the year our travel explorer, Hannah Roberts. Hannah, hello. It's great to have you back. Always happy to be here. OK, so what are you going to introduce us to today? Today, I'm going to take us to the Seoul Urban Life Museum and more specifically, their current special exhibition named Residential Life in Seoul. So the exhibition is all about the homes, uh, the home lives of people in Seoul during the last 70 years and more particularly lets people learn about the typical home from the late 1950s and the late 1970s. Yes, before we delve into this uh, special exhibition, can you tell us about the museum in general first? It has a very interesting name, the Seoul Urban Life Museum. It does, yeah. The Seoul Urban Life Museum is uh, is one of the lesser visited museums. Have you been? I've not been myself. N- yeah, many people haven't. Um, it's particularly lesser visited by visitors to Seoul, but even people who live here, you know. Mm. Uh, but it's a really interesting place to learn about Korean culture and history. And in fact, like, in my opinion, it might be one of the best ways for people to learn about life in Seoul mm. and about the people that have lived here. You know, we can all relate through shared experiences. And what better way is there to be able to relate to someone if not through their home? Right? Indeed, okay. So the Seoul Urban Life Museum is a life and history museum where people can learn or reminisce on the everyday lives of Seoulites and aspects of Korean culture, both uh, from nowadays and throughout history. Uh, allowing visitors to do this are several exhibition halls, some permanent and some rotating. I see. So it's about, I guess, chronicling the daily lives of uh, Seoul residents That's in right. uh, modern history. Yeah. Okay, So walk us through the museum a little as well then. Uh, what can you learn through the museum's permanent exhibitions? The permanent exhibition halls broach uh, many topics, including the conditions and development of Seoul from post-war times through the rapid development of the 1980s, the development of the Seoul citizen and how their identity has changed with time and how Seoul has grown and expanded. You can also learn about the families of Seoul and about how people have met and married uh, and about the customs of those marriages from several generations of people. Right, Okay. The museum also allows people to explore the daily lives of Seoulites from their homes to their education system, their jobs and their social lives. 
To do this, the museum has built a replica home inside and the exhibits are all uh, liberally peppered with real artefacts from generations past. The whole museum is very interactive with areas for children to learn also. And in a nod to the building's own past as a prosecutor's office, there is even a replica detention area for visitors to sit in and try on prison <laughs> uniforms if they so wish. Wow. OK, so that sounds like a rather unique experience. Yes. Uh, but I do think it sounds like a young Korean children will really enjoy it, particularly when they go with their parents, yes. comparing how uh, the living environments and daily items have changed over the years. Mm-hmm. I also think it'd be interesting for foreign visitors to learn about how quickly Korea has changed in recent decades too. OK, let's talk about the special exhibition that is currently on. It's titled, as you said, Residential Life in Seoul, or uh, Seoul Sariwa Chip. It's on view from November to early April next year. So what does this exhibition have to offer then? So whereas the rest of the museum is focused on all aspects of life in Seoul, this current exhibition, Seoul Sariwa Jib, meaning Seoul Life and Home, mm. focuses mainly on the houses of Seoulites from the 1950s to the 1970s. It also looks at the type of home that the people of Seoul want to live in based off survey data from 2021. Right, so useful to compare and contrast, I guess. Yes. There are three sections to the exhibition, with the first being called Seoul, Seoul People, Seoul Homes. This section discusses the rapid expansion of Seoul and the complexities that have come with that, the leap in population and uh, that population density, mm. as well as housing pos- policies and styles that were introduced and have died out also with time Mm. and also uh, new inventions home appliances and items from daily life that uh, caused and uh, were brought about because of changes in everyday life for soul dwellers right so a bit of a uh, walk down memory lane for a bit as well definitely yes the second exhibition uh, the second section of the exhibition is all about the past houses of soul which this this part will probably cause even more nostalgia Mm. uh Houses that no longer exist and some that still exist even today. Uh, Within this section, there are four types of houses we can see through both film film and photo and also through uh, real life recreations of those different houses. Mm. The four types of home that they touch on include an urban hanok, 1950s United Nations welfare housing, a two story Western style house, which were commonly built in the 1970s and turned into two apartments downstairs and upstairs, mm. and a 1975 music municipal apartment from the neighbourhood of Jamshil. So life in the urban Hanok and the Western-style house can be seen in the exhibition through uh, photos and movies filmed in that time, right? as well as real household items that are on display. But both the welfare housing and the Jamshil apartment have been recreated in accurate size and uh, also display their artefacts within the museum as they would have been positioned and used within the homes. So you can walk through uh, what you could, you can walk through physically those apartments as they would have been. So it's a full on experience then as you walk in and you really see what uh, people in the seventies and fifties might have, uh, the environment that they might have lived in. Yes, you can. Yeah. Very immersive. Photos and films help visitors understand the true feeling of the houses and interviews with people who lived in those homes are also played for people to watch and listen to. Right. So as you said, again, uh, quite a trip down memory lane, a nostalgia trip for those who especially lived through such times in such houses as well. Definitely. The third part of the exhibition, rather than looking 
back rather than that nostalgic moment. Uh, it's looking forward at the future of homes that might exist in Seoul. Mm. So it examines the changes in keywords that have been used in housing advertisements, exposing you know those you know how the basic needs of Seoulites have uh, changed with time. And it also presents the results of a survey taken by the museum about domestic living, discussing uh, also how COVID has affected the demands that Seoul citizens now have of their housing. So we can see a prediction or a, a kind of idealization of what sure. Seoul people would like in their home in the future. So a bit of a future speculation. Yes. Uh, but mostly a walk down memory lane for a lot of adults, it seems like, while children will be able to... I guess, uh, ogle at how strange yes. their parents' worlds uh, <laughs> might have been when they were growing up. It sounds like it could be a fun day out for the family. Uh, finally, tell us, how can we find this museum? So the Seoul Urban Life Museum is located at Taedong Station on Line 6 and 7. And it's just a short walk about two streets behind Exit 4. Uh, entry is free for all visitors and it's open every day from 9am to 6pm, except for Mondays and for public holidays. Well, Hannah, thank you for telling us about the Seoul Urban Life Museum and the current special exhibition, Residential Life in Seoul. That's all for Explore Career this week. Hannah, hope you have a good week and we'll talk to you again soon. See you soon. I'm cellist Saul Daniel Kim, and you are now listening to Career 24 on KBS World Radio. We finish up, as usual, with our closing segment, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Career Times and the Career Herald. And for that, our staff editor, Richard Larkin, is in the studio with us. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you, too. OK, so what do you have for us first today? First is about the latest beauty craze in South Korea. All the details can be found in Lee Yoon So's article in the Weekender section of the Career Herald. Apparently, people are getting personal colour tests to find out which colours are best for them. OK, so personal colour tests. Yes. Uh, what exactly are they and what do they find out? Well, they find out if people are warm-toned or cool-toned. The article mentions that warm-toned people have a yellow-based skin undertone and cool-toned people have a blue-based skin undertone. I learned a lot reading this article. <laughs> warm-toned people are suited for light and pastel-toned colours, while cool-toned people are suited for darker colours like forest green, wine red and black. Hmm. To take these results, many people get consultations from professionals to get the best results. Right, so you need uh, help from professionals, I guess, yes. to get uh, the best results. Uh, I do wonder what sort of... Uh, tone I am, whether I'm warm-toned or cool-toned. But anyway, uh, can you tell us more about these tests? Uh, were they established recently? Actually, no. The first test started in 1993, so it has been around for a long time. But experts say the reason it's becoming a craze now is that people are becoming more individualistic. Originally, people like to follow celebrities or use famous beauty products, even though they didn't suit their skin. Mm. But now, with the help of technology, such as the rise in apps that, you can, that can test you, it seems to be easier to find out what's best for you. The article goes into more detail on how the test works, 
as well as why the craze is increased in popularity recently. Sure, I imagine the role that social media has played in this craze as well. People want to look good in their photos, so they're trying to find out what makes them look good, I guess. It's uh, another tool for that. And I also think, as someone who has a sister who loved makeup and everything, I think over the years, makeup is becoming more individualistic as well, right, suited right. to more skin tones, so which mm. means it's easier for people to find their skin tone as well. Sure, as you said, another tool to help you look good, I guess. Yes. Let's move on to our next story. What do you have for us? Next is about an installation produced by London-based Korean artist duo Breakwater. Park Ansel's article can be found in the Entertainment and Arts section of the Korea Times. Fermented Flower takes a look at the layered history of labour migration in Asia in the 19th century after the emancipation of enslaved African Americans. Yes, and when we say the history of labour migration in Asia at this time, with talking about tens of thousands of people, right? Huge numbers. Exactly. Tens of thousands of workers, mainly from the East and South Asian countries like China and India, were brought to areas such as the United States, Latin America and the Caribbean to replace the loss of slave labour. The article mentions that conditions were bad for the workers, so sadly there were high death rates. Yeah, the conditions were barely above slave, slave labour, really. Uh, what about that period of time specifically, uh, the 19th century, uh, that interested the artists? Well, the two artists said that the exploitation and stigmatization of Asian migrant workers still happen in this day and age. Mm. So it's more like a comparison. Right. One example mentioned was the 2004 Morgan Bay Cockling disaster, where 23 Chinese laborers drowned after they didn't notice the ocean's tide change. The workers were illegally trafficked into the United Kingdom by local criminal agents. Another was the 2021 spa shootings in Atlanta in the US that killed eight people, including six women of Asian descent. Yes, both were terribly sad incidents, of course, mm. and they both uh, say a lot about uh, migrant workers, they're particularly Asian migrant workers, about the conditions that uh, they come uh, to these countries and work. Right. Uh, does the article mention what the artists hope viewers can learn from their installation? Well, during the showing, the artists served the audience dandelion liquor. One of the artists, uh, Yoon Suk Choi, said, by sharing the drink, we are also sharing the responsibility to work toward collective healing. The duo's work is part of a group exhibition called Local in the Making, which runs until January 21st, 2023 at the Arco Art Centre in Seoul. Well, it sounds like a very powerful and mu uh, moving exhibition indeed. Yes. Uh, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you for bringing us those stories and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's where we call it a day today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So do join us again then for more news, reviews and reviews from Korea. Until then, we hope you have a great day. I've been your host, Kwon jang And thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. KBS World Radio.